You have to be looking externally, outside in. What are the trends? How confident are you in those trends? And how confident are you on the longevity of those trends? So scenario planning and hypothesizing and coming in with a point of view or thesis become really important in terms of predicting where the world is going and how you remain relevant to that world. That's Bob Moritz, PwC's Global Chairman on How to Set Strategy. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. PwC recently released the findings from our 24th Annual Global CEO Survey, and over the course of my conversation with Bob, we're going to look at a few of the emerging trends as CEOs look ahead to a year of reinvention, economic growth, and a better future. And Bob uses those insights and the experiences he's had in his impressive career to share some lessons with us. So with that, let's get started. So Bob, so excited to have you on the show for discussion of the recent results of the CEO survey and some broader strategy questions. But spoiler alert for our audience, I'm most looking forward to a lightning round of questions that you may not be expecting at the end. So with that said, I know we recently released the results of the 24th annual CEO survey. So just to kick things off, can you give us a little bit of background on how we conducted the survey? We've done this survey 24 years now, and it's an opportunity for us to connect with many CEOs on a worldwide basis for many different countries and regions of the world, as well as many different sizes of organizations. And this past year, we had over 5,000 participants in the survey process, which has given us a tremendous, robust amount of data and insights for us to consider analyze, and hypothesize about. Okay, great. And I know, Bob, that you did a webcast that goes into way more detail, and we'll definitely include that in the show notes. But just for a few highlights, so from looking at the survey results, I have to say one of the things that surprised me the most, it's actually something about last year, so that even before the pandemic, 53% of CEOs expected decline in global economic growth over the next 12 months. Whereas this year, 76% are expecting an improvement. And this is the biggest change in sentiment we've seen over the survey history. And so now, obviously, I think we're all hoping things are better than 2020. But are people only optimistic because things were so bad last year? Or are there other reasons for the optimism? Heather, it's a great question. We get it lots of times. I would say it's a combination of the two. We have to acknowledge that the pandemic was a tragedy on all sorts of levels in a way that humanity has never felt before. So it's painfully obvious that everybody's expecting us to have a much better year as we look ahead. Having said that though, organizations are looking at three different things as additional reasons for that optimism. First and foremost, they survived. They actually were able to move from a really difficult scenario to where they are today. And in doing so, actually enabled more creation of muscle or connected tissue. So they have a confidence that whatever gets thrown their way, they'll be able to take that and turn it into opportunities. So that's the first point. The second point I would say is the consumer demand is clearly there. And we see that in many different forms. Now, what people buy and how people are buying and where they choose to buy might be different. But that's why, again, we think that the recognition for opportunity is going to go to those that move the fastest to capture those changes. The third thing that is important to note, though, is that the survey results 
was in fact dominated by a lot of large-scale companies. Those large-scale companies have scale, they have resiliency, they've got a tremendous amount of resource, and they were making a lot of digital investments. The pandemic just accelerated both the investment in digital as well as the transformation coming from it and the ROI that ultimately people were looking for. So I don't want to minimize this, but one particular point that's important here is 14% of the respondents were less than a billion dollars in revenue. We know the pandemic hit particularly hard, those small or micro-sized organizations, and that's where the pain points are still there. Never mind the pain points coming from labor. In the case of labor, the question is, how quickly can we reskill labor to get back in the workforce? Because we did go through a seismic shift in productivity, and that's something that we, the business community and we governments are going to have to focus on as we look ahead. So, Bob, I think your first point on the fact that if you su- survive this pandemic, you can basically survive anything. I think we could all agree with that. I guess on the more, I'll say, less optimistic point that you ended with in terms of labor and these smaller companies, do you see any optimism for them? Or, or where do you say, you know, if you were one of those companies, where would you be looking over the upcoming 12 months? So I think, again, these small to medium-sized enterprises, as well as, for that matter, the medium and large-sized enterprises, have got to follow the consumption side of the equation, right? Follow the consumer, what they're buying, how they choose to buy, what kind of consumer experience they're ultimately looking on. And every piece of the supply chain should be based upon and focused on, actually, how do you make that a better experience and attack more market share opportunity? That's what's important. And that goes back to the consumer at the small little retail shop or the restaurant sitting on the corner in whatever city people may be in, as much as it goes to the large retail organizations or hospitality organizations. The second point I would focus on is, though, management teams have got to create the environment for innovation. Let that come from the bottoms up. The workers you have in your organization, your employees, are closest to your consumers, closest to your clients, closest to the other people in the organization. They're the ones that see that friction cost that gets in the way of bureaucracy and, and, and speed. So as a result, give them the power to innovate. And we've never seen more innovation than we have over the last year, both in terms of the creation of a vaccination, a vaccine rather, and the ability to actually do vaccinations, but also the amount of innovation that happened at the corporate level to allow for that transition that they just went through over the last 12 months. And that's tremendously exciting for people that do it well and can capture it on a going forward basis. Yeah. And I think to your point about the corner shops and restaurants, I think we are all fingers crossed that we start to see some resurgence of those. So hopefully good change there. But to your to your second point about innovation, I know that's been a huge you know theme, actually, even of our podcast series. And the pandemic really created this urgency with which companies need to embrace this. So companies that were good before need to get better. But if you weren't so good, you need to get good quickly. So what can you tell us about that? I think there's three big ingredients for people to allow for that innovation or transformation in a big time way. First is giving your people permission to actually go change things. Status quo is not an option. You should be giving them an environment where they're free to try to create, to innovate, and and sometimes even fail, but fail fast and learn from those failings. The second point is you've got to give them the skills. The skills needed to change things, the skills needed to create the bots and the apps, the skills needed to adopt technologies, or the skills needed to lead in a technology-enabled world. And that's so important. The third is actually data. 
a data-driven exercise rather than an anecdotal-driven exercise is really important to demonstrate what does the consumer really want, what's the effect on productivity, what's the effect on the bottom line, how much investment is needed, what kind of data is needed that should be analyzed quicker, created and accumulated quicker, or ultimately put to work quicker. So those three ingredients are super important. Skills, environment, and data, along with the technologies, those are the secrets to success as people get uh, engaged in this and go for that transformation. One last point to raise, if I can, Heather. You've got to be focused on the outcomes you're looking to achieve, not just the digitization itself. What should be coming out of this is a better people experience, a better customer experience, a better productivity, a better ESG-driven initiative. That really is important to think about the end game. And this is just tools in the toolkit to enable that to succeed and enable you to attain those objectives that you're looking for that should satisfy the large group of stakeholders that organizations have to tap into. All right. Well, I'm going to come back to a couple of those, but on the point of data, I have to say here at the podcast, we are huge fans. And in fact, we used a lot of data to figure out what topics to cover. But what I'm curious is if I'm listening, I'm thinking my company does not have these ingredients. Where would you start? Start small and pilot. Don't try to take on the world or change the world. Um, If you spread that peanut butter too far, it's going to be really thin. You're never going to get the objectives. What you want to do is build the momentum for success. So some pilot areas, some co-created areas, but think small, prove that it works, and then build upon that success, maybe moving into other areas or maybe scaling whatever initiatives and innovations you've had previously. And again, the bigger and faster you can learn and then scale, those are the organizations that are going to be successful going forward. The leadership team has got to be the ones driving the agenda here to create that environment. It's so important for anybody's success. It's a lesson learned that we went through and a lesson learned that we've seen others go through as well. Well, and Bob, I was just going to ask you, the leadership team also has to let people feel comfortable trying and failing, as you said. And I think sometimes that's a hard thing when we're all used to focusing solely on, you know, what's my next success? When you look at what leadership teams that have had to go through over the last year, the safety of people, the implications to the communities, the difficult economic challenges, make it personal. Their own facts and circumstances of dealing with somebody in their family or their friends that got COVID, those was a tremendous amount of stress. So what we're asking leaders to do is just to create the right environment for change, support it drive it, figure out ways to highlight it as a positive, not a negative, and make sure that status quo does not become the option. Because status quo in today's world, which is fast as we are moving, basically means you're standing still. If you're standing still, you've fallen behind and you'll no longer be relevant. I'm going to argue you might not even be in business. Yes. On that note, let's move on to another question from the survey. So you mentioned ESG. And one thing also that surprised me about the survey was that only 30% of CEOs cited concern about climate change. And again, given the current environment, I would have expected that to be higher. But even more surprising to me was the fact that 60% of CEOs had not factored climate change into strategic risk management. So clearly here in the US, it's an area of focus. I know in Europe as well. But where do you attribute these responses to? So on the first point, let's acknowledge that there was an improvement in terms of the importance of ESG. I think that was not as big as we probably would have had normally had we not had such a crowded agenda. 
there were many different risks and issues and uncertainties that CEOs were focused on. Pandemic being number one. We've never had that on the list before. Misinformation, another one, being higher than the climate change issues. So I don't want to minimize it, but I also don't want to um, let people off with the wrong impression that it was in top of mind. Because anecdotally, every CEO that we're talking to, every CFO that we're talking to, and every conversation those CFOs and investor relationship people are having, it's usually with an investor, an analyst group, a credit agency, or otherwise, it's usually top five questions that's on the table. Now let's go to the second more surprising point, which is the fact that over 60% had not built it into either their strategic planning process or their risk assessments. Here's where the rubber hits the road. I think what you're finding right now is, again, a constrained agenda in terms of time and energy. I think you're also seeing, though, the effects of organizations putting forth some big goals, but long-dated goals. You see a lot of commitments. I'm going to be net zero by 2040. I'm going to be carbon neutral in the next 10 years. Whatever the case may be, what CEOs are trying to do now is say, what do I need to do in the next year or two that I can bake into my immediate next year's budget, get processes changed, get accountabilities and incentives aligned? That's where the, each organization is struggling, and that's why everybody is innovating and learning along the way. And as you think about this country, in particular the U.S., you're going to see a lot of enablement to help make that happen because this administration clearly is banking on that for job creation, employment, and future prosperity that not only pays down the debt that we've incurred over the last couple of years, but also creates that growth that we're looking to achieve as we think about the world order and how the U.S. is positioned against the globe right now. Yeah, it's interesting with climate change. My team and I were actually talking this morning about a company that had a net zero goal of 2050. And this is a complicated company. And I said, how are they possibly going to do this? And one of my partners said, well, they got 29 years to figure it out, which is true. Although that said, given how long we know some of this may take, it really does make sense to start now. So Bob, one question for you, you kind of alluded to this in terms of climate change, maybe not being as high on the agenda, just the need to reinvent the workplace because of the pandemic. So how, you know, and that's something we saw in the survey as well. So how have we thought about it as PwC or how are actually maybe more so are you seeing clients all over the globe thinking about that question? Yeah, so it's interesting, Heather. This is where um, these points are coming together. And what I mean by coming together is how do I come out of the pandemic is one question. How do I think about transforming myself maybe in a manner consistent with coming out of the pandemic? So don't waste a crisis. And third, how do I think about the ESG agenda? And, and all of those three things are converging. The thing I would say is everybody got forced in to working from home because of the effects of the pandemic and the ramifications of not focusing so much on people, i.e. the spurting of the disease and, unfortunately, uh, the health issues that resulted from it. We've got, though, two or more years to come out of this. And the whole world's not going to be forced in. So every organization is going to do it slightly differently. And we're going to learn along the way and adjust along the way. So the first point I would like to make here is my advice for organizations is don't assume you know the answer. Let's work to figure out the answer over time. And you're not being forced to rush to get to that answer right away. And think about it in a milestone type approach. If you think about it in a milestone type of approach, the first issue over the next couple of months is how do I get people educated as to whether they need to be vaccinated? And how do the business community incent that? And second, how do I get people comfortable enough or trusting enough to want to come back to the office 
or go back to work in a way that's somewhat consistent, not entirely, than the way I did before, meaning interacting with other organizations and the ecosystem you're operating in. That's the immediate issue that CEOs are thinking about on right now. So like others at PwC, we're also thinking about that same thing, a phased-in approach over time, learn along the way, continue to keep your primary focus on the safety for your people and the communities in which you work, and then redesign work as we move forward, which will then require you to redesign office space and what it looks like, how much of a footprint you need, and ultimately what it should be scaled up to over time over the next couple of years. Well, and Bob, it's interesting because you mentioned kind of persuading your people on some of this. And I do think that the pandemic is maybe the first time, at least in my career, that you really saw people feeling okay saying, hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come back to the office. Hey, like PwC might reopen, but I'm not reopening, you know, those types of things. And I do think that is a shift that people are going to continue expect to expect, particularly when you think about the younger generations, what they're expecting from work, et cetera. So that seems like a whole other challenge that companies are going to have to deal with. We saw over the last couple of years, even before the pandemic, one of the key things to think about as you manage talent is give your talent choice. Give them optionality. And just like with the pandemic, many organizations will say, I'm not going to do a one-size-fits-all, but you'll have choices. And everybody's moving towards a hybrid approach, which will be a combination of some working from home, some working from the office, some working in some remote sites, be it the coffee shops or some variable space that you might be renting at any given point in time. But making them part of the solution rather than them being told what to do, I think is an important theme for management teams to consider as they evolve their own thinking and the policies and procedures that they put in place. That's why when you look around the world right now, many organizations, what we have found, are not requiring a vaccination prior to return, it's going to be more encourage the education and strongly encouraged to get it, but then figure out ways to actually manage what that work of the future looks like and what the workforce of the future and the office of the future looks like going forward. Well, and I think worker safety is such a different discussion than it used to be. I'm from the power and utilities industry, and we've always had this concept of the safety minute, but I'm not sure it's something office workers really focused on prior to this pandemic. Well, yes and no, right? So they didn't focus on it as much as we needed to, which goes to safety. When everybody talks about safety, it's usually your physical well-being. The other element that clearly got highlighted quite more so in this pandemic was the mental well-being and the stress-related issues. So when we think about mental health and mental illness, clearly this is going to be another compounding issue that management teams had to pay particular attention to. And the demands on the organization will be such that they look at both physical well-being as well as financial and, and ultimately uh, mental well-being also. Well, and I think that's just another example of how the past year our work life and our personal lives have merged. I think people talk about things at work a lot more than maybe they would have, you know, if we rewound a year. One thing we saw this year is that there's different sentiments in different countries. Specifically, we saw CEOs in the U.S. looking one direction. We'll have perhaps CEOs in China are reporting interests in other areas. So can you give us a little more on this? The gap between the U.S. and China increased. The question that was asked was, if you had to invest outside of your home country, go ahead and list the countries that you would want to invest in. In the past couple of years, the U.S. was ahead of China by a small degree. This year, that gap increased tremendously. And primarily, it comes from a change in mindset from the U.S. CEOs 
and a few of the European countries that worry about the rule of law, that worry about some of the social issues, what worry about the technology-related issues as you think about data privacy, 5G, and the like in China. So it caused them to pivot away. In the case of China, though, China took the approach that they still want to trade with as many players as they can, both for purposes of the personal consumption that's happening on the domestic agenda, as well as obviously the um, Belt and Road initiatives they have in terms of enhancing trade on a worldwide basis as they continue to play the global game. The thing that you saw differently out of China was a little less from the U.S., not much, a lot less in terms of their trade partners in Australia because some of the geopolitical issues right now, and a big increase in ASEAN, meaning the Philippines, Malaysias, and Indonesias of the world. So the Chinese are definitely looking a lot more north to south than they are, per se, east to west, even though that change is significant if you look at the overall surveys. The last point I want to make is, don't kid yourself, even though the gap between the U.S. and China was a lot, China continues to be a big demand in terms of need and therefore a big opportunity for foreign companies to want to invest in as they think about the rise of the middle class and taking people out of poverty, which clearly is an issue as you think about China and the billion plus people that it has today. All right. Good perspective there. So then I want to pivot and talk more specifically about strategy and your experience with strategy and your role at PwC. But before I do that, you mentioned the new administration, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but anything you'd be willing to speculate about in terms of direction or how we may see the new administration maybe influencing answers to these questions when we ask the survey again next year? Well, first, as we think about trying to predict a year from now, I think you're going to see the world reflecting on the U.S. as being back in the global agenda, so not solely focused on the U.S. You see that in the formation of the Paris uh, Accord. You see that in some of the trade conversations that are already underway. So that dichotomy of U.S. and trade and trade between U.S. and China, that latter part will remain. But I think you'll see less of it as we think about the U.S. role with the rest of the world. Part of that's because there's acknowledgement that global trade is super important. Even though we talk about protectionism and nationalism, the interdependency has become even more important going forward. But second, we still will have a degree of um, dichotomy between the U.S. and China, and the U.S. will question itself as to whether they go alone or try to get a coalition of the willing. So they'll look for partners in that regard. The second point that is not surprising and was a risk that was identified was the issue around tax. And in the case of tax, let's step back. The world put a lot of debt on its balance sheet, either in the form of the consumer and the individual citizens, the forms of the corporates for purposes of survivability, and maybe even eventually investment, and governments, as we thought about stimulus packages. How we pay that back is going to come solely from the tax regimes that are articulated around the world. And let's not forget, even before COVID, we were struggling with the fairness of tax systems around the world. Are they fit for purpose? Are they biased in one way, shape, or form? And that's why the OECD was looking at that carefully. And then you come back to the last issue in tax, which is the digital taxation issues that have happened, particularly between the U.S. and Europe as we sit here today. All those are still going to be continuing, and you're going to see, as obviously was announced, the administration in the U.S. going after that issue, probably more so on the corporate side than the personal side. The question is going to be, can we get agreement where you have a divided um, administration going forward? The last one I would say is the issue of climate and broader ESG. The administration has already made the statements clearly that that will be a big, important part of their agenda. And everything they do, 
job creation, stimulus bills and the like will all tie back to that. That does then result in the formation of what does it mean for rules and regulations? And the question that's on everybody's mind, are we going to have more rules and regulations or will it come through the purposes of enforcement? So it'll be more behavioral aspects. And that remains to be seen as the administration starts to look at how they enact this and how they enforce this on a going forward basis. So those are three of the themes, Heather, that I think are going to be really important as we look forward to the next 12 months. Well, and that's a great preview of some podcasts that we have coming up in this series. So thanks for that. Um, so then with that, Bob, let's pivot to your personal experience and specifically some insights that you've had in your role. And you mentioned, or we talked about climate change and these goals that are you know, 2050, 2040, and, you know, all these ideas that setting strategy for this long time horizon, but at the same time, everything's changing so fast. And even if we, again, rewound a year, no one would have anticipated what happened. So with all of those moving parts, how do you set a strategy and, and what do you think about when you're looking ahead, whether it's a year or two years, you know, however far down the road? So the first thing I would say is you have to be looking externally, outside in. What are the trends? How confident are you in those trends? And how confident are you on the longevity of those trends? So scenario planning and hypothesizing and coming in with a point of view or thesis become really important in terms of predicting where the world is going and how you remain relevant to that world. The second point that I would want people to focus on is you've got to listen carefully to the stakeholders. More and more stakeholders are much more active. We've talked about in the past, for example, investor activism. Well, now let's talk about consumer activism and maybe even employee activism. And we've seen some examples of that, particularly over the last two years. So engaging with that stakeholder group, understanding what they expect for you to articulate what you're doing and why you're doing it is really important in terms of managing your brand which ultimately is where your focus should be relevant to strategy. The other thing that has to be done is place a couple of bets, learn, and be really nimble and agile. As you said, the world is changing very fast. So the question really is, how do I scale up or scale down? The pandemic, prior to the pandemic, we were already moving in that direction, that the need for speed, the need to scale up and down fast, and the need for agility was becoming more important and more important as you look at successful companies navigate. The pandemic just put that on steroids. How quickly could you change your portfolio of offerings? And that could come in services or products. Um, how quickly could you change your supply chain? How quickly could you change your price point? How quickly could you change the method in which you're selling to people? Is it all online? Is it at the grocery store? Is it at the 7-Eleven down the street? Is it at the stadiums that no longer are having people at them? Those that move the fastest to adjust to consumer demand and consumer to behavior was really important. So, so to your point, all three things go into then the factoring of what's got to be looked at. The second big point I would make is that as you think about strategy, chunk it up, meaning don't try to set a strategy for 10 years. The world is going to be extremely different. The only thing I can tell you, it's going to be wrong. Whatever you predict, it's wrong. So you want to be thinking in increments, you know, three years, maybe five years at the most, and then have milestones along the way as you think about the changes you're putting in place. Now, within that, Heather, the last point I'll make, and then we'll come back to more questions, you've got to focus on trust with that stakeholder group. How do you enhance trust to enhance your brand? Second, whatever you're doing has got to change what you've done in the past to get to that different and better outcome. 
the stakeholder is going to look for progress and they're going to want to see information to allow for comparability. That allows them to make choice around what product I'm buying, what em- uh, employer I may want to work for, what investments I make. So thinking about progress and comparability against those milestones becomes really important as you think about strategy, but also the execution of that strategy. So then from a strategy perspective, you talked about failing fast and you talked about no matter what you guess, you're going to be wrong. So then how do you know when to change strategy or when to kind of stay the course? This comes back to being close to the marketplace. You've got to watch carefully and listen carefully, engage Um, It can't be a one-sided conversation. It's actually got to be both sides. And use outside experts to give you some additional data points. That's why boards are in place to give you some other perspectives. That's why advisors are in place to give you outside perspectives. So you don't want to go it alone. And you want to make sure that you have a good enough understanding. And make sure you can differentiate between what I'll call a fad and a trend. Right? That fad is something that might come for a little while, but it might flip tomorrow. The trend is what's most important. And again, having a thesis of where things are going over what time horizon becomes really important in terms of navigating that gray of what's happening in the world that we live in today. All right. And then, Bob, you mentioned the importance of all these different stakeholder groups. And I know this is another area where you helped PwC show leadership by signing the business roundtable statement and, you know, overall this importance of stakeholder capitalism. So if, if you were CFO of a company, how would you be thinking about, you know, this new way of looking at business? So first, there is a reality that the world is going to be demanding, if they aren't today, information on the role you play in society at large. Um, That may come in the form of an analyst call that a CFO, an investor relations person has to react to. It comes in the form of employees choosing to come to you. It comes in the form of business partners wanting to be part of your supply chain and ecosystem. And that reality is now. I think a lot of people are questioning whether they the momentum and the capital markets are ready for this. I would say the last two years, the answer and momentum has gotten us to a definite yes. And now what you see, it's coming in the form of investors being focused. When you look at the creation of ESG index funds and the like, you see the institutional investors placing bets in terms of who should I bank on as driving the chain that's not only good for their short-term profitability, but also for the world at large. So I think there's a recognition first that you've got to be focused on this. And there is an interplay between profitability as well as doing good. And those things are not exclusive of one another. They're actually very much intertwined. The second point is you've got to think about how you actually incent better decision-making to balance the needs that are in that area. Those stakeholders demand a lot, like I said earlier. You've actually got to put not just process change in place, but incentive changes in place. We're used to managing bottom lines and margins or market share. How do I now manage margin and market share with carbon emission or inclusion or what I'm doing to upskill my people? And that becomes super important because you've got to be able to tell your story in all all those elements, which gets to the last point, which is you have to think about the back end, which is the reporting. You need quality data to tell those stakeholders what you've done. Describe the progress you're making. Describe the goals you've set. And by doing so, hopefully you are better positioned than your competitors, and that allows then for capital, consumption, employees, and others to choose you rather than them. So it's acknowledge the change, recognize you've got to incent the right behaviors and put the right processes in place, definitely start to accumulate the data 
to actually start to tell that story and measure comparability on a consistent basis, and then be very proactive in, in talking about what you're doing and why. So then when you think about companies you know that are doing this well compared to maybe some that are lagging, any specific characteristics of the leadership teams that stand out to you? Um, proactive rather than reactive. Organizations that are taking this issue on and talking about it publicly, assertively, and proactively are definitely the ones that are ahead of the game, and that's cascading through their entire organization. And second is you've got to make sure that middle management is part of this process. It can't just be a talk at the top of the house. So you've got to get the middle management to be equally involved, and that's what I meant by incenting the right behavioral change and how, in fact, you're rewarding good behavior versus bad. So, Bob, that's actually perfect lead-in to my next question. And this is actually a question I've had for for you for a long time, long before we knew about this podcast, which is that, you know, over the years at PwC, there's been a lot of places where you've shown personal leadership. So we talked about signing that business roundtable statement. Um, In November, you signed or you wrote a blog that was a call to action for a single set of global standards. And even years ago, you issued a blog supporting LGBTQ rights before that was a popular agenda item. And so how do you decide when it's worth it to be proactive, show true leadership, and get ahead of conventional thinking, especially on topics that could be controversial? Um, I have always thought that the topics that I would personally engage with have to be aligned with the topics that are most important to the organization. There is a natural connection point. As a result, the topics we've chosen to engage on all come back to being a talent magnet to attract the right people, to be much more inclusive in that opportunity, and to invest in our people as well. And that's so important when you think about a service organization like PwC. So many years ago, when we talked about um, same-sex marriage rights, it was not an issue of just the LGBT plus community and what is emotionally or intellectually right. It was also good for business. Why would any organization not want to support that? Because by not supporting it, at the end of the day, you might actually be excluding some talent that wants to join your organization. We're trying to actually attract as much talent as we possibly can. Why would you want to limit yourself in terms of the talent you attract? So all of these issues that we, myself, and many other leaders in PwC have taken on have always come back to our business strategy. What's most important to us? What's most important to our clients? And how do we play a role doing good for business and society, which is done in a matter consistent with our purpose? And can we role model in the right way? The second point I want to make, Heather, though, is it comes back to our purpose. Many years ago, we landed our purpose, which wasn't per se a statement that we wanted to advertise around, but rather what we will do when no one's looking. We wanted to help build trust in society and solve important problems. In order to do that, you not only needed to do it for yourselves, you actually had to role model it for others, thereby allowing others to see you and come to you to ask for advice and what your own experiences were. So we talked about our own inclusion and diversity initiatives. When we talked about our own upskilling initiatives, we could be a force for good, not only for the people of PwC and our future employees, but also we could be a role model for others to follow and learn from. Let's be humble. We don't have all the answers. And we actually could help society as well. 
So working with it from a societal perspective, the rest of our client base, and for the people at PwC became another foundational principle as to the choices that we're making and the initiatives that we choose to take on. So then, Bob, let me ask a question, and this one's not from a leadership perspective. It's actually if I'm an employee, even maybe if I'm a CFO who's disagreeing with my CEO, and it's not to say you hate everything about the company you're working for, but maybe it's taking some positions you don't agree with. How would you think about that if you saw that you didn't agree, that they weren't focused on climate change or some of these other issues you talked about here? Um, for the day-to-day employee, um, you look around and say, okay, um, is my organization having values that I can agree with? Um, and if not, why not? Really getting to the why. And I think that's important for people to understand because I do think in today's day and age, people just focus on the headline and not, don't understand the, they understand the what, but they don't understand the why, why this was said or why it was taken on or what was the reasons behind it. So people have to at least be vested enough to understand that before they make decisions and talk negatively or for that matter, positively about that particular initiative. The second thing is if you see things happening where your company or your business unit or your leader is not actually doing the things that you think they should be doing, raise it, escalate it, talk to them about it. Some cases you might uh, be able to do that one-to-one with that person. Other times you may need help. You should never go it alone. You might actually talk to some others that could be influential in that. Last but not least, if those values don't align with yours, I would just ask the question, are you at the right company? And ultimately that's the employee activism that I talked about earlier, because you may walk with your feet in terms of making that decision. But let's make sure you spend some time before reacting to the headline and reacting in a way that actually puts you or them in harm's way. Last but not least is you still are a representative of the brand. So what you choose to say publicly in social media and others is also an element that you have to think carefully about and wisely about before taking that action. So, Bob, I think a point you're making, though, is that strategy is not just for the leaders. It's really everyone should be engaged to make sure they understand their company's strategy. They agree. If they don't agree, speak up. For sure. Um, The way we think about it at PwC, we've got 284,000 people around the world. Our job is to help those 284,000 people enhance their own personal brand. And if we can get the connections amongst those 284,000 people, that does become the brand of PwC. Our strategy is all about having a better enhanced brand as other stakeholders look at us. If we have that better enhanced brand, those opportunities for growth will come. The opportunities for improvement will come. The opportunities for better performance will come. But focus on the brand, the brand management, and do it at a personal level as well as the corporate-wide level. All right. Great advice there. So now we're going to go to those lightning round questions. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. So first one is whether you have an example when you actually had a setback within your career. So obviously you're the chair of our global firm, so it all worked out. But specifically, how did you recover? Because I know we've all had those bad days. Wonder how are we going to recover? So Heather, I have bad days all the time and I always have a lot of mistakes I make, but you learn from those mistakes. Um, I'll, I'll point to two. Um, first and foremost is early in my career, I did not leverage a team enough. I tried to do a lot myself, whether that was male, ego, or otherwise, I don't know. But there was a lot of learning that caused me to think differently about the people around me and the team that I have. 
rather than me having to be at the center of everything. So that's one example where there was a big difference when I was first a partner and a leader at PwC versus the leader I am today. And that responsibility to think about delegation and leverage, but also to give people the opportunity so they can grow themselves. The second point would be, and you talked about it earlier, a focus of mine, which is around inclusion and diversity. The concept of sponsorship is so important, not just mentorship. And there is a big difference between the two. The sponsor puts their personal capital at risk. Let's, one of my lessons learned was you have to put your personal capital at risk to give people the opportunity. What you also have to do is put your personal capital at risk to make sure they succeed. And I can tell you early on when I made a leadership change with a focus on diversity, I took a lot of time and energy to get them into the role. I didn't do as much as I should have or could have in terms of making sure they succeed in the role. So again, another lesson learned that you have to apply going forward. The last thing I'm going to say on this topic is every day is a learning opportunity. It's up to us individually to absorb them and then choose what to do with them. So hopefully people understand that the world in front of them is a lifetime of learning opportunities. It's up to them to take advantage of them, do something different than the day before. So then this one actually is kind of a follow on in a way. But when you think about the most effective leaders you interact with, whether within PwC or with our clients, what are three common characteristics? In intellectually curious. They're always asking a lot of questions. Um, Second is very engaged with the IQ and EQ. So they get to that reason of why, and they have context before they make decisions. And last but not least, they are a great builder of teams. This one is more personal. So right now, I think with the blurring of home and work, we all kind of feel like we're in this 24-7, always-on environment. And for you in particular, I know you're dealing with people all over the world. So any advice for how you've been able to find balance? Um, Be selfish. Um, You've got to make sure you prioritize your time and energy because that world that you described will will suck up as much time as they possibly can get from you and, and, and for you. So you have to prioritize when to take a break, when to take a couple of days off, when to get away from the devices, or even for that matter, something as simple as, Stop and give yourself 20 minutes to walk outside, get some fresh air. Otherwise, you'll be in front of these video screens and microphones 24-7. So you have to be a little selfish in terms of what you're doing. The second thing I would say for your own sanity is make sure you're reaching out to others and connecting the dots. So I'm an individual. I convene a lot of different groups of people, be it my family members or my friends or workers or colleagues or clients, whatever the case may be. That motivates me. That gives me more energy, even though it's time consuming. But you got to invest to get something back. Those relationships are so important. So the more you do, the more benefit that's going to come, which gives you the aspiration and inspiration to hopefully get through another day. This one follow on, follows on to that. So of all the challenges of the past year, and we're recording this right around the time the pandemic was um, declared last year, what was the hardest thing for you? For me, it was probably personal time away from family. Um, I've got kids that live all over the country, um, family mothers in terms of my brothers and sisters and cousins, and my parents are still alive. So not being able to see them and interact with them as much as you wanted to face-to-face was a huge negative. And likewise, the same for friends. Um, I did have a friend that was very close to going on a, a ventilator, very personal friend, um, so not being able to go to the hospital to see him, not being able to interact with other, him other than on a, on a Zoom call, 
was just tremendously challenging as you think about it. The second point I would make is the time issue. It's stressful. Um, let's not kid ourselves between working from home who, and, and the fact that people's cheese has been moved, who moved my cheese using that analogy, and figuring out ways to prioritize your time and keep the energy up was a big strain. And that's why I'm a big believer in take some time off, take that walk, get outside, refresh and invest in yourself. Yeah, maybe I should have asked the order or those questions in the opposite order, because I think the first one was a little more uplifting than the second, but glad to hear uh, you made it through that. So then finally, what was your goal when you started at PwC? So I assume you did not anticipate becoming the chair of the global firm, or did you? No, I never anticipated this, nor did I desire this. Uh, My goal when I first started, honestly, was to get two years of experience, get certified and get out. Um, for those that are listening, you know that um, at least in the U.S. at the time, you had to pass the CPA exam, get certified. You needed two years of experience before you had the three letters of CPA behind your title. Um, and as a result, that was my job. That was my thinking. That was my bias. Uh, and I was much more of a day-to-day guy, meaning deal with whatever is getting thrown my way and figure out a way to manage it. I did not spend a lot of time thinking about what's the five-year plan or the 10-year plan or for now the 35-year plan. That's gotten to be where I am today. I sort of took all the opportunities and just made the most of them and let the cards ride where they may. So that was supposed to be the last question, but I have to ask a follow-on. So you said you did not desire it, but I hope now you do. Of course. It's a great job, a great opportunity to interact with so many different people and have so many different experiences. And to represent PwC or being a member of a leadership team that represents PwC It's just fantastic in terms of the brand that I was able to inherit based upon all of the work that the 285,000 people do. And for that matter, all the people that came before me. Um, That's just a unique perspective and opportunity. It's a huge burden of responsibility as well to make sure you don't screw it up um, and you do all you can every single day to try to, again, take another step forward and leave a place better than you found it. All right. Well, Bob, definitely been... uh very informational and aspirational. And I have to say, when you're ready, I'd love to have you back for a whole leadership series. So thanks for your time today and for all your insight. Pleasure to do it. Nice being with everybody today. Thanks, Heather. Take care. That does it for today's show. Thanks for tuning in. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next week, we have an episode on interim accounting for income taxes. That's on Tuesday. And on Thursday, we're talking about the evolving cybersecurity environment. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.